then I jumped over to, to Hebrews where it says that how Abraham, he dwelt in the land of promise, but he dwelt there as an alien. He dwelt there in tents. And it's like there was, you know, when he was called out of earth, I believe really the first place he went was to the promised land, but it wasn't the promised land that God was going to make. It wasn't what God intended for the promised land to be yet. And God couldn't make it that through him at that time. There was a journey that he had to go on. There were things that God had to do in his heart and life to fit him for the place that he had to fill in the coming forth of that promised land. And Hebrews says, says all of them uh, perish without receiving the promise. How, how they're not made complete without us. And I just felt it today. It's like so many times, I think of so many meetings where Brother Blair would, would lay out before us the promise, the vision, what God had for us to be as a people, as a church, as a body, what God was doing on the face of the earth. I thought about how when Brother Zach came and shared with us the vision that God had independently, the same God, but independently given him how, how it resonated so much with us and how it was so in keeping with the vision that God's been, been unfolding to us for all that time. And yet I, I feel it's like we're still today dwelling in what God wants to build in tents. We're still there as, as aliens and visitors. There's so much more. I think of how many times as Brother Blair and others stood up and pointed to that sign and said, I work a work in your, your days which you would not believe or be told to you. And I feel that sense today that we do not know the full extent of what God wants to do. This vision that we see, we see so much of it. We feel like we see so much of it. And yet the extent of it, where God wants to take it to in terms of broadness, where God wants to take it to in terms of depth in our own lives. And I, but I just feel that it's like we, we are still, we're still dwelling in this land as sojourners, as pilgrims. We're dwelling in this promise that God has for us. There's so much more that He wants to do and bring the fullness and bring the fruition. picture came back to my mind that I haven't thought of in quite some time, but is emblazoned in my memory. And it was something that happened when I was about 16 years old. And Brother Josiah and Brother Philip will probably remember this, because we were, we were coming back from working on a recording project in the 43rd Street Church. And it was late at night, it was 10-something at night, and we, came, we were coming down Lakeshore and there was, there was hardly anybody out on the road, but there was a car parked in the middle of the, of the road, down at the bottom of one of those dips. And its hazard lights were on. And as we were coming closer, we realized there is a woman out in the road, leaping up and down, and trying to get our attention. And she was, I'm going to say, late middle-aged, um, very well-dressed, jewelry, etc. She's probably been coming home from a dinner party. And she was beside herself, completely out of control in the middle of the road. And, of course, we stopped. We turned aside to see what was going on. And, and uh, she had just witnessed a car come down the hill beside that road that tees into Lakeshore 
and fly through the guardrail and down the hill towards the lake. And it was, it turned out, it was someone committing suicide, actually. And um, we went, we were the first ones down there and, and the guy had, had, he died shortly later. But the thing was, it arrested my attention as a young person and the Lord spoke to me through it that, you know, this woman probably never pictured herself ever behaving in that manner. This was completely outside of her plausibility structures of how she was going to behave in this world. And yet the circumstance had so captured her, the burden of it, that she was not thinking of herself in the slightest bit anymore. And as a 16-year-old with plenty of pride at the time, God used it to speak to me that if somebody from that world can become beside themselves over a stranger, can I become beside myself for God and his purpose? Thank you, Jesus. And, and I just thought, that as that picture just flashed back to my mind this morning, I thought, you know, there is so much more potential inside of human beings than we would like to admit. There's a lot more that we could be and do than we commonly realize. Amen? Isn't it our tendency to measure it out in teaspoons while we experiment and see how it goes? Amen? But to be actually gripped with the kind of burden and purpose and anointing that causes us to lose thought of self and all our plans and trajectories and what we imagine that we are and what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are, to forget about that and be harnessed to be possessed by the love of God. Praying before the meeting today, I felt like the Lord suddenly asked me, have you considered the possibility that I might be asking of you by orders of magnitude things beyond what you currently are? Thank you, Jesus. And I don't even know completely, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But I felt like the Lord asked me that. And then I felt like maybe he was asking more than me that question. That there may be a lot more potential inside of you and inside of me than we have yet realized. And I happened across a quote this morning, uh, for, and I don't remember who said it, but they said it was something to this nature. I thought of it when Brother Joel just ministered to us. And he's, it was somebody who said, whenever an individual or an entity declares that success has been achieved, progress stops. And I also am mindful of a, a dream that my wife had um, early this week. She told me about it when, we were, when I was on my way home from out of town. And uh, she said, you know, I had this dream. And it was uh, out of the blue. And she said, I was placing a phone call to a family in the fellowship, a couple in the fellowship. It's someone who's been here for decades. Their children are mostly grown and gone. It's a family that's had a lot of needs and a lot of battles over the years. And she said, in the manner of dreams, I was, it was as if when I placed the phone call and I was hearing them speak to me, I could see inside their home. And I was stunned 
by what I saw and by what I felt. Because this couple was unrecognizable as the people that we have grown accustomed to. It was as if they had assumed some type of burden for a ministry that was reaching to whole groups of people that God was drawing in this direction. And it was not someone that you or I would have expected to fill this role because of the history and such. And she said, it was so powerful. I felt the Holy Ghost and, and like we, should, we need to delete our expectations. We need to raise the bar a little bit and let God determine where that bar goes. And I, I told Amanda when she shared it with me, I said, why is it that when people come to know the Lord for the first time, we expect huge changes? We're used to, uh, in some, on some level, we're accustomed to the stories where someone seems to be maybe an introvert, but they came to Jesus and, and had a powerful evangelistic ministry. Amen? Because we say, well, God got a hold of them. So who they thought they were and who everyone else thought they were didn't matter. Jesus changed them. And, and we're accustomed to these stories, aren't we? We've heard so many of them. There's a room full of them here. Amen. But why is it that we consign that kind of change to the beginning? Why is it that we, are, we, we don't even consider or entertain sometimes the possibility that there could be change in orders of magnitude beyond what we would expect, even in your sunset years? Amen. Even if you're over the hill, even if you think I've been defeated, I missed my chance. I might could have been this and I might could have been that. But all these years of defeat are in between me and what could have been. Do you believe God less after living for him for 30 years than you did in the beginning? Amen. And I think the reason that we tend to set those, that bar so low is because it's so infrequent that we see it. To use the world's wisdom, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Amen. But turn to the pages of your Bible and read about this man that Brother Matthew was sharing with us about. This guy wasn't young. This guy had plenty of problems. He had all kinds of things wrong. But he could hear the voice of God. Thank you, Jesus. And it says there, Paul tells us in Romans that Abraham considered the fact that his body was as good as dead. This wasn't a pie-in-the-sky kind of faith. This wasn't, a, well, let's ignore reality. Let's ignore the past. Let's ignore my frailty. He considered the fact that his body was as good as dead. And he did not waver. Amen. But in hope he believed. Some translations say, against all hope. In hope, he still believed. And I'm not suggesting to you today that we're supposed to start fabricating for ourselves some mighty thing that we think we're supposed to do. I'm just suggesting that we open our hearts and our minds and say, oh God, lead me, Lord. I'll follow anywhere you open up the door. Don't let me set the bar. Don't let me set my idea of what my potential is, Lord. God, I want to realize what you put me on this earth for. 
Hey man, it doesn't matter if I'm Samson grinding at the mill and I've blown every chance that I've had before. Is there some possibility maybe, amen, that in the death of all of that, I might bring more enemies of the Lord down than in all of my life? Hallelujah. That's the God that we serve. Let's not limit his potential today. Hallelujah. When Brother Dan was ministering, I thought of this passage from uh, the uh, Heroes of Faith, this passage from that Hebrews 11 section. And I shared this with the young people on Tuesday night, but it's the same passage Brother Matthew was reading from. And I just want to circle back and say, he said that Abraham dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign land. So he was in the promised vicinity, but he himself was not ready or able yet to take possession of it. And Brother Matthew is saying that we also are in the promise vicinity, but there are degrees that we have not possessed yet. There are extents that we have not owned yet. And I thought of this passage that I shared with the young people Tuesday night. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt. And I thought, what does that mean? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Was that a diminishing term? Was that a belittling term in Egypt? When he chose between whether he would be called a Jew or a prince, which was more inflating to his position? For someone to come up and say, Ah, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. They would have had to bow to him. They would have had to obey him. They would have had to serve him. So it says that he refused. This is a pretty adamant word that they're using. It means somebody's trying to do something and he's insisting repeatedly, I won't accept that. And I just, I told the young people, "This this is an identity question that Moses is facing. This is an identity question where he's trying to be fit into a mold that says, this is what you're intended to be. Amen. You're intended to fill a place here in Egypt. You've got a, you've got a road marked out for you right here in Egypt. You've got callings, you've got responsibilities here in Egypt, but there was something in him that adamantly and insistently said, I reject that identity. I feel like that's what Brother Dan is addressing today. Whether it's a flattering image 
or it's a failure image. The devil wants to squeeze you into a mold and an identity defined by your failures, defined by your past, defined by your fears, defined by your upbringing. And it was faith. Moses' first act of faith was not to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. His first act of faith was to say, I won't accept that identity. God has something else for me. See, the world is always trying to give you these little molds. We might as well call them caskets. Where you can stop growing, where you can stop hoping, where you can stop transcending, and you can just fit in. Amen. You really fit in well here. Oh, God, I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I would, I choose to endure ill treatment, reproach with the people of God rather than this identity that is being foisted on me. You see, you can't have both. You can't be a spiritual Egyptian prince. You can't be an Egyptian prince reformed. You're going to have to pick one side or the other. You're going to have to embrace one identity or another. And Brother Dan, I believe there are people in this room who are called to ministry. The Lord spoke that to me a couple weeks back and I shared it with you. He said there are people in this room who are going to surprise you and who are going to one day lead God's people into great things. But I believe those people cannot embrace that calling and its attendant grace because they are still hoping they can be a reformed prince. They are still hoping they can be a a prince with renewed anointing. You're going to have to pick one or the other. How many of you remember when I shared, you can't be, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to be a minister who does business or a businessman who dabbles in ministry. That's stuck in the heart of many, but across the board, this call to perfection is a call that will not be fulfilled except by responsibility of burden that comes on us. That says, God, I'm choosing today. I'm making a decision that this area of the kingdom is on me. And this is my identity. This isn't something I dabble in. This isn't something I do. This is who I am. So you can have all the gifts. You can have all the intelligence. And you can have all the wisdom. And you can even have the personality of influence. And you can be a leader. People can follow you. Even if they just follow you in circles. It flatters you. Amen. But what are you going to do with that? You're going to be a prince? Or are you going to be a Moses? Amen. And I think some of us, we want to shirk it off. We want to lay it down. But we have so accustomed ourselves to our security zones, to those places where we feel strong, and to, to venture out into the unknown is so shaky, it's so vulnerable, it's so embarrassing, and You know, maybe you feel something on your heart to speak to God's people and maybe it's a prophetic insight, but you can't stand up and speak it that way. 
you got to couch it in a joke or you got to deprecate yourself so that nobody takes you too seriously. you got to lower expectations. Amen. And all of it is just the flesh trying to stay where it's secure. Amen. Instead of step out there and say, God, if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to do your will if it's the last thing I ever do. Amen. The Lord gave me a, a change or I gave myself a change this past week. And I know you can't tell. And it wasn't a, a vow of consecration. And it wasn't a willing step of humility. It was simply a slip of a razor. Amen. Of a trimmer. Amen. But it's good. It's good for the flesh to be humbled. It's good for me. And I think that, that the Lord is asking me how much stock do you put in who you are in an identity that you think you have outside of being my servant amen what could you lose and still feel sure that you are my servant well this is a small thing it's not even worth mentioning but could you lose your health could you lose your job could you lose your property? Could you lose your place in the church? What could you lose and still have the security that you were a child of God? What is your identity? Amen. You see, identity is something we choose in order to augment our insecurities. And the more stable that identity is, the less insecure we feel. But the problem is, is that identity may be in conflict with God's purpose for your life. And you don't even know that it's an identity, but it is. Try to break it, try to flex it, and the flesh won't let you. That's what we were feeling last week, and what we're feeling again this morning is a, a liberty in the spirit. But some are going to stay just as caught as when they came in here. And they think it's because they're different. But it's because they have chosen an identity that is incompatible with the liberty that God is offering. I saw my dad grow old. I saw him weak with cancer. I saw him lose all his hair and his beard. And Oh, it made me turn my head a time or two. But it didn't change who he was. Never changed his burden. Never changed his focus. Never changed his zeal or commitment. Mom is the same she was when they started the church 50 years ago. Same burden. Same abandon. What that indicates is that they got the right identity at the onset. And so they didn't feel dismantled at the end. If you pick the wrong identity, you're moving toward a great dismantling. And to whatever extent you have hybridized God's purpose for your life with some identity you've chosen, to that extent, you're going to go through some adjustments. And we all will to some extent. It says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't, he didn't change. He was the same. Amen. We change. 
But the things that we change are the things that impede and prevent the expression of God's purpose, God's grace, God's love in our lives. I read a quote recently from uh, Joni Erickson. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows us to go through things that he takes no pleasure in. He allows us to suffer what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. You know, I don't want to be someone who can't willingly strip off the identity of the flesh or the identity of Egypt. I don't want to be someone who has to be dismantled by circumstances. If, if you've got a calling on your life and you've got a purpose to fulfill and God is determined to make you feel that purpose, but you are unwilling to come under that yoke and that mantle, I am very sorry to tell you, but you are going to go through some terrible dismantlings. You're going to go through some terrible reductions. That's what the whole story of Jonah is about. It's about somebody hearing the invitation to do God's will, refusing to do it because it didn't align with his images, and then God pulverizing those images until he lays amidst the the fish puke and doesn't have much dignity or pride left, and he's willing to stand up and do God's will. Oftentimes, we think that we're waiting on God. We think that we have aspirations to do God's will. But they are our version of events. They are our version of fulfillment. Amen? We don't really see what he's asking, asking of us. That's the song, if, you, if I told you what I really need, would your heart and soul say yes? Thank you, Jesus. If, we, if I told you there is more that I require of you, would your heart and your soul say yes? What a prayer. Yes, 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 yes. But how many windows do we walk by where the Lord does show us what he needs, but something in us just twinges and says, I don't think that's necessary. And so we stay in the ruts of fruitlessness that we complain against because we're unwilling to shirk that security, that image. Nothing is more important to me people of God, then the presence of God and surrender to the purpose of God to be caught up and carried by the anointing of God. You can shave my beard. You can shave my hair. You can take my health. Everything that is precious to me and that is still going to be my life. You can take my house. You can take my place on the land. You can take everything from me. And if I have that, the assurance that I am a servant of God, ready to turn on a dime to do his will, I am fulfilled and I have purpose. I'm not telling you that the Lord wants you to give up your job, but if he told you to give up all your wealth, would you do it? If he told you to sell it all, would you do it? 
Because you know he did tell people to do that from time to time. And if you can't say with a resounding yes, then you're just playing games with yourself. If he told us to sell this land, to liquidate the craft village, to shut down this building, and to go into the cities and serve on the street corners, would we do it? If the answer is not yes, then something has started to wheedle its way into God's place. We are not here because of what it gives us, although we thank God for that. We are not here for the blessings, although how can we imagine our lives without them? We are here because God told us to be here. Hallelujah. And if I'm here for any other reason, I'm not here for God. I'm here for myself. I find it humorous when I go out of town and, and uh, leave the parched, uh, drought-stricken uh, regions of my dwelling and go up to the green pastures north and west, and, and they try to sell me on the better weather. I told them last time, I said, listen, while I'm trying to make a sacrifice for the will of God, if you're going to make it harder on me, I'm going to make life hard on you. You don't have to sell me on the better weather, okay? I got it. But you better not be there for the better weather, and I better not be here for the weather. I'm here because God wants me to be here. It's so easy for our ambitions to start to hybridize with God's, at least in our imagination it is. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. For us to start living by something other than the word of God. When my dad left California to um, go, I think, to Phoenix from there, Mom? Or was he? No, he was going from California back to Austin and then to Louisiana and then on to New York or what? Yes. So he left California really wrapping up the revival, the evangelistic revival tour. And he was, after two and a half years, he was heading to New York. And in California, I believe it was, he had a gun collection and he sold it. That gun collection was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just one of those guns was worth $15,000. He sold the whole thing to a pastor for $6,000. $3,000 went to, he, he gave half of it, $3,000 to a mission starting in India, and he took the other half to pay his way to New York and get started. And you say, oh, what a loss. Especially when you find out that the person he sold it to went and, and uh, capitalized on it much greater. What a loss. Was that a loss? I mean, does that, does that loss weigh on my dad in his old age? You know, you know, son, I made a terrible mistake once. I know all the things that God did through me, but there were these guns. And uh, I just took a short sale and... Make a heap of all your winnings and throw it on the altar of God. It's nothing. It's nothing. Young people, if you're thinking that way, you don't have the mindset that started this church. Do you want to graduate out of the mindset that started this church? Or do you want to adopt the mindset that started this church so that it can be a movement that multiplies all over the face of the earth? Has God blessed you? Thank Him for it. Has He made you prosperous? Praise His name. Be generous with it. But don't ever 
Let it become the mark of God's favor in your life. We know the rich man who had his good things and it all ended in hell. Don't let that become the mark of God's favor in your life. Every time you take pride in something, you ask yourself, if God told me to sell it right now, would I do it? And if you hesitate, get on your face and ask, what is wrong with me, Lord? Why am I starting to be seduced by other gods? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You hear a lot of people say things like, I really want to get my business in order so that I can give my time to the Lord. Is that that what it sounds like Jesus is saying? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you? I'm all for somebody who, like Paul, can have a tent-making industry that allows them to be more free to the ministry. I applaud that. But you better be careful because the mind seduces itself. We deceive ourselves about what our priorities really are. I remember I was only 18 when I sat across from my dad and I had been offered two good jobs that were well-paying for an 18-year-old. And one was outside and one was inside and I thought one of these might really be the next step for me. And he asked me, he said, well, what do you feel like God's called you to? And I somewhat bashfully and sheepishly said, well, I feel like I'm called to the ministry. I was already ministering weekly in the nursing homes and ministry to the elderly. And he said, he said, well, anything that does not take you closer toward that calling is not the will of God. So you need to ask yourself, every, every step you take, does this take me closer to the realization of God's call on my life? And if it doesn't, it's not the will of God. And he told me, he said, you can, you can do this. I'm not going to stop you. If you feel to do this, that's fine. But he said, you better ask yourself, are you despising the day of small things? So I chose a, a path that didn't, didn't pay, but it did equip. It did prepare. What do you feel like God's called you to? What is your purpose in the kingdom of God? Say in your mind when I ask you, what are you called to be for the kingdom of God? What is the gift that God has put inside of you that the kingdom cannot survive without? If it's a gift of hospitality, say that. If it's a gift of helps, say that. If it's a gift of administration, say that. Organizations, say that. If it's a gift of teaching, or pastoring, if it's a gift of prophecy, if it's an apostolic calling, if it's a gift of healing or miracles, a gift of leadership. Say it right now in your mind. Say it. What God has gifted you for the sake of his people. Well, you're not sure. You might be wrong. You're hesitant to say it even in your own mind. But I'm going to say to you what I said, what my dad said to me. Anything that impedes your moving into that gift is not the will of God. 
Are you seeking to serve the body first in that capacity and second in everything else in your life? Because if you're not, you haven't sought first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things to be added. You've, thought, you've sought all these things and hoped that kingdom benefits and kingdom service would be the icing on the cake. My service for the kingdom is not the icing. You know, if I asked you, should Brother Dan and I go out and see what we can get for our gifts in the world and pad our lives with plenty of money and then we'll come and minister as, as we're able, you would be astonished, right? If I said, well, you know, we've been offered inspirational speaking engagements, $10,000 a pop, and they've been offered a gig with a, uh, a music recording studio that's going to land them a million dollars over the next five years. And, and if I started describing to you all the ways we could prostitute our gifts you would be dismayed and rightly so. But if you give any of your gifts, whether practical or otherwise, first to the world or first to self, how is that any different? Is your life not consecrated to God? Is everything not a sacrifice to the Lord? If you can't see the sacrifice in it, if you can't see the kingdom in it, how is it God's will? Maybe it's God's will as an add-on, but how is it the center of his purpose for this time? You know, we, we dabble and we play around, but things could happen. And, and I just want to test drive some ideas to you. You know, if, if, if somebody walked into that from, through those back doors with a blanched face and, and, and said... Uh, you know, came up here and told us something terrible has happened in the nation. You know, D.C. is under attack or Austin has just been wiped off the map. Or, do you understand? A rogue, this has happened or a civil war has broken out and nations have, states have divided against each other. If, if somebody walked in from that back door and came up here and said that, I want you to know that your priorities would adjust like this. You would change your footing entirely. Your analysis would change. Your prayers would change. Everything would change. God has already told us that we are living in a world that is going to be destroyed. And he's asked us, considering these things, what manner of men ought you to be in godly fear and holy conduct? I'm telling you right now, it's not a prophecy because that entails that there's a risk that it's not a certainty. It's an absolute certainty. If something tragic happened in this nation, you would see dozens more people in the next meeting. They'd be pouring in here. And you would know it was because they knew the truth. They were just dithering, not wanting to make a decision that cut off their options. But you're doing the same thing on some level. God has called us to build an ark before the first raindrop comes down. 
And if we're giving anything more than we're giving to that ark, then we're giving in the wrong place. And when the first drops start falling, it's all going to make sense. But we better be sure that when those drops start falling, it'll be too late. Now, he could only rely on eight people. Eight people to build the salvation of mankind. Why? Why? Because only eight could believe before they saw the reality of the trouble that was coming. Is the world going to be flooded next time? I don't care what those climate gurus tell you. It is not. But what did Jesus say? He said it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. How does he, somebody quote it to me. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. The day that it happened, there was no change in their behavior until the day that it happened. I am sick and tired of calamities or troubles coming and us saying, I wish we had. If we would just do God's will, we can all say, I'm glad we did. I want to be part of the church that says, I'm glad we did. I don't want to be part of the disobedient, head-in-the-sand ostriches who said, I wish we had. And this goes for your family. You see, brothers and sisters, we live in a wicked world. And the flesh is desperately wicked. You need to get a reality check. Some people come to me all freaked out, blanched and white, and they can't believe that sweet little Johnny would do something so horrible. And you know what I'm astounded at? I'm astounded at their astonishment. Because you were living by some paradigm that was not God. If you had seen reality, this would not have surprised you. It may have disturbed you. It may have disappointed you. But you need to pray that God shows you that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Don't have Pollyanna expectations for your kids. Have awareness of how corrupt the human heart is. How corrupt the culture is. Have awareness and be proactive and build the ark before the rain starts falling. And if you went through that reality check and that adjustment and you see that your friend or your brother or sister in the, world, in the church has not yet gone through it, would you go to them and wake them up? Somebody says, well, this is heavy. I know. It's real though. And you'll thank me later. If you knew, if we were in Poland right now and the year was 1938... And you knew the violence, the concentration camps, the rape, the murder, the hangings and, 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 and uh, assassinations on the streets that was coming. How would you want the church to be prepared for that event? How would you want them to be prepared? If you knew that your children could face 
horrible things. How would you raise your kids differently? I, I don't believe and I don't, I don't believe for it. I don't want it. I'm not hoping for it. Don't get me wrong. But we need to inculcate resilience into our children. And you know what? Where, where people are going to be destroyed and lose their minds is people who lived by a dollhouse Christianity, a Pollyanna make-belief life where Jesus is just going to take care of everything. Those people are going to be pulling out their hair saying, where is God? Just like many did in the Holocaust. But those who have an ear to hear are going to be building Palestine before it ever happens. I, I want us to change the way we look at our kids. Even if it's not for them, if it's for their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren, do you really believe that this is the eternal kingdom of God? The stars and stripes over America. Is that the eternal kingdom of God? Give me an example of any empire that has not fallen with a crash. Please, now, please give me an example. There are none. But you believe this is going to be the exception. You believe the trend that is happening in the schools. You believe the trend of the, the riots of 2020 and the violence of January 6th. And you believe the trend points that this nation, this culture, is the eternal kingdom of God. Could somebody stand up and tell us that this is the eternal kingdom of God? Could somebody stand up and say, upon this rock I'll build America and hell itself will never overpower it? Because I know he said that about the church, but he didn't say it about this nation. It may not happen in my lifetime and it may not happen in your lifetime, but it's going to happen. What manner of men ought we to be? We don't need to live lives of fear. Fear is what you respond, how you respond when you put your faith in the wrong place and that place is shaken. But we don't want to put our faith in the things that can be shaken. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain. And he's given us a faith that need not wobble with the towers that are already teetering toward a fall. We need to get a grip. We're not schooling for success in the world. We're schooling for salvation. If you're schooling for success, you are fattening for the slaughter by the world's standards. School for character. School for resilient faith. School for an ear to hear God. School to teach people how to love their neighbor. Yes, they need to write and read and do arithmetic and learn algebra and all that good stuff. That's not going to get anybody into the kingdom of God. And it's not the reason any lives fail. The absence of that is not the reason any lives fail. Amen. Oh, I refuse to be called the prince of Egypt. I refuse it because Egypt, Egypt has a judgment already declared against it. He said, I'm going to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. And I don't want my identity there when it comes down. 
I don't want my kids there. I don't want my thoughts there. I don't want my hopes there. I don't want my money there. I don't want to be there. I want to be across the Red Sea, heading toward the promised land. Thank you, Jesus. I mean it, people. You ask yourself what changes you would make. How many of you, if you're honest, during 2020, you contemplated Maybe we were surprised by some of the things that happened. Maybe we were surprised by the empty grocery shelves. Right? Maybe we were surprised by the draconian requirements to vaccinate. These things troubled me deeply. Maybe we were surprised, but raise your hand if you were one who looked for the first time toward the potential alignment of a disaster that you thought was afar off, but then you suddenly saw this could happen. Things could go really bad. Things could go cataclysmic fast. Raise your hand if you're one of those people. Now, the only thing that would keep you from changing your life in accord with that insight is a delusion. A delusion that America is eternal or that Western culture is the kingdom of God. It is not. It is going to fall. And I pray that bastions will hold out. I'm glad to live in Texas. I think Texas is a a bastion of liberty and a collection of decent people. I, I am glad to be in a place where there is a higher concentration of devout people than anywhere else in the world, as I believe it. Amen? I I am glad for the people of Idaho that we're close to and the people of Montana. I love the fact that that people of faith are congregating, are leaving the cesspits of California and moving where their faith dictates because they don't trust the system. I think I have nothing but praise for our Governor Abbott. I think he's an honorable man. I don't think he is the kingdom of God. I don't think he presides over the kingdom of God and I don't think he'd tell you that. He's a Catholic, but I think he's a very decent man. I hope he stays in office as long as possible. I love the way he handled COVID. I am thankful for a lot about this country. I am grateful for the Constitution. I am grateful for the traditions of common law and limited government. America was God's gift to the world. America represented that that brief time in history where the church was challenged to fill society with good things so that the government could take a back seat. The government was put in chains and limitations in this country and the church abdicated the realm of responsibility it was called to fill and in its void, the government is coming and taking over again. And it's a tragedy, but it's also an incredible place. It's not the eternal kingdom of God. And if your view of church places less significance on the protection, yes, I said protection, on the protection, on the provision, on the relational security, on the dependable uh, uh, resources. If you have less of that in the church than in the kingdoms of this world, then just acknowledge that your true church is America. If you think that's where the safety is going to come from. But in Isaiah, he says, they will no longer turn to the one who struck them. Brother Joel, do you mind reading that scripture from John 17 about being perfected? 
that you read at the beginning? It was Jesus' prayer that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. What does the perfection of the church indicate? Well, it indicates that, that God sent Jesus. But what's the second thing he says that it indicates? That God loves us. A father disciplines the son he loves and scourges the son he receives. A lack of love is to leave us in our imperfect state, our fragmented condition, our partial almost state. But love is to bring us all the way. Do you see that? It's the evidence of relationship. And God is showing us favor and love by telling us to reevaluate, telling us to change the way we look at the things we do and the extent to which we do them, by telling us to reject the identity of failure, the identity of age, the identity that the devil has put on us that would in any way hamper the faith of Abraham who considered his body as good as dead and did not lose any faith because his faith was not placed in the thing that was dead. His faith was placed in God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that are not as though they are. It is his affection for toward us. It is his love for us. Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The very first time the word grace is mentioned in the Bible. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord said, you got to do some things that didn't make sense for 120 years. We are already reaping the fruits of changes we made when you came out of New Jersey and when you left the world to become part of this. You already have fruits in your families, don't you? But we've got to have the faith where even if we went for 120 years, we could still obey God without seeing any evidence. Sister Avery was in Montana and and a reporter came by to interview them and and they brought a, a team of a photographer team with them. And the photographer team uh, is taking pictures. It's a husband and wife. And at one point, the lady lowers her camera and pulls Avery aside and says, could you please just tell me what is going on here? What is this about? And Avery said she felt the Lord give her the words that she had never spoken before, but they just came out of her mouth and she said, We are building an ark for the people of God for the times that are coming. And the lady said, Oh, I can't believe you would say that. The Lord told my husband and I this week that we need to find the ark that God is preparing. Brothers and sisters, this is our mission. And if it didn't drain one drop for 120 years, we're not going to stop. We're going to do God's will. But we can't be, I don't know what else Noah was doing before God told him to build an ark. I don't know what he liquidated. I don't know what he did in order to give his time fully to that task. 
I believe it was his uncle, Methuselah. Wasn't it, was that his uncle, guys? Somebody tell me. Grandfather, Josiah says grandfather. Everybody, he's responsible. Um, so I think it's his, I think it's his, uh, his grandfather, like Josiah says. Um, but Methuselah is the longest living man in history, right? How long does he live? 969 years. What does his name mean? What does the name Methuselah mean? It means death. It's a combining the word death with deluge, with flood. If you were to make it into a sentence, Methuselah would mean when he dies, then comes the flood. 969 years before the Lord shut the doors of the ark, somebody had an ear for God and named their son prophetically Methuselah. And the year that Methuselah died was the year that Noah finished the ark. He was a sign. Isaiah says, here I am, and the children Yahweh has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel. He was a sign. And God preserved his life for 969 years. You just picture Methuselah. He may have been ready for heaven by that point. Could you please go ask Noah if he's done yet? I just got back and the tar is halfway up the side of the ark. He says he's going to be done by Wednesday. Oh no. I mean, I don't know. But for 969 years. Because he was prophetic of what was coming. Can we tap into things from God that change the course of our history and our children's history 969 years before they happen? I won't be around to be held accountable for these words. I got news for you. It's not going to take 969 years. We need to adjust. We need to change. We need to choose an identity. We need to give ourselves wholly to the purpose of God. Don't you feel like we've made progress even in one week? I feel like we've made progress week after week. But guys, we're not ahead of schedule. We're behind And where we're behind is in leadership stepping forward. Where we're behind is in responsible men taking responsible actions to put the kingdom first and everything else be added unto them. All right, I'm just going to say one last thing to the brothers. You who in your heart and mind said that you were called to a place of ministry. I want to address myself to you for just a minute. So that you will be accountable henceforth. You are never going to move into that place of ministry if there is anything more precious in your life than that calling. There's zero chance. Two, you're never going to move into that place of ministry until you strap yourself in a constitutional relationship with one other man whose fruit you want to produce in your own life. And you make yourself the servant of his ministry, extending his ministry 
to the church, to the world. You're never going to do it. As long as you dither around and you have touch points with a lot of people, you're going to stay just about where you are right now. You're going to stay in the shallows. But if you will strap yourself in a covenant of service to one brother, and it's God's choice, not yours, then you're going to give birth to that ministry. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Can we just bow our heads and ask the Lord to look upon our hearts? (laughs) Oh, God, in Jesus' name. Lord, we feel the responsibility that your glory, that the reputation of your name might rest upon us in some measure, small or great, God. We feel a responsibility to be an ark, not just for this congregation and not for animals, but for your people who are going to come at the last minute and are going to need to find a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And Lord, you heard our hearts, you heard our words in our hearts when we said the gifts we believed you had given us, God. And we feel the conviction that we have not placed the proper priority on the kingdom. And we are making an adjustment today in Jesus' name. We heard a prophetic word and we're not willing to dwell in the promised land as a stranger anymore. We heard the prophetic word and we're not willing to box ourselves in unbelief and consign ourselves to the has-been pile. If Abraham could still find God's purpose at a hundred, none of us are beyond realizing the next powerful change in our life. God, we consecrate ourselves. We give ourselves with whole hearts to your purpose. Nothing is more important. We refuse the identity of Egypt and we embrace the reproach of God's people knowing in the end it is the only salvation and hope. In Jesus' name.